Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Marty Wolfs, the U.S. Secretary of Labor. Secretary Wolfs, this is not the conversation that maybe you were preparing for yesterday or I was preparing <laughs> for overnight. Can we just recall what you said earlier this week going into this number? Let's listen into that together. We're living in very interesting, unique times. This is unlike anything that, that any White House has ever experienced before. Well, maybe 100 years ago. Uh, so, I, you know, we're going to continue to follow the president as he continues to put plans out there to move our economy forward and moving people forward. You were preparing us for a soft print, Secretary Walsh. We got a mega one, a fantastic one, 467,000. There's some interesting details beneath the service. Just give me your take first of all, please. Well, first and foremost, just for the clip, to, just to stay in line here, we are still living in very unique, interesting times in the first in a, in a, in a century pandemic. But, uh, you know, we look at these reports. The, uh, let me just touch it on this two, 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 two ways. Number one, the report for the month of January was, was a very good report, a very solid report. Uh, and I think underlying what it's telling us is that we're in a very different position than we were in, in March, April, May, June of 2020. We're seeing people in economies and workplaces and workers and employers really learning to live with a pandemic and adjust. So we are in a different place there, number one. Uh, the, the adjustments uh, certainly is great to see too. BLS uh, is the gold standard when it comes to t taking in numbers. We all know that in this country uh, and they're very transparent. And when, when I saw that number today, that was actually more surprising to me a little bit than, than the month of January. And I asked them, you know, how did we revise 700 plus thousand jobs? And what was explained to me was over the last 10 years, we've had about the same revisions over, over that same period of time. So we're excited. I'm excited today. But you know something? We still have work to do. And, and you know, this celebration can last for a little bit, a couple hours while I do these TV hits. Yeah. And then we got to go back to work. Well, let's talk about what we've got to work on. The consumer at the moment, Secretary Walsh, just doesn't feel it. I can go through the data. Yeah. I can talk about where unemployment is, where wages are. They feel the 7% inflation. They feel crude prices where they are crude through the 90s at 92. You saw consumer sentiment last week, decade low. What's the disconnect there at the moment for you, Secretary Walsh, and how do you and the administration fix that? How you say things are and how they look and how people feel at the moment? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's necessarily a disconnect. I think it really is about how people people feel at the moment. You know, the American people and, and, and folks in this world have gone through a lot in the last two years uh, with the pandemic. And I think there's a lot of concern about their family, a lot of concern about the virus, a lot of concern about if you if you if you've been vaccinated, the people that aren't vaccinated, if you're not vaccinated, you don't want to get vaccinated. So there's a lot of concern there. But all I know is that the president uh, laid out a plan at the beginning of last year to get people back to work. Uh, 6.7 million Americans got back to work. The president laid out a plan to deal with inflation uh, a little bit into 2021. Uh, we're working on those supply chain issues and other things. So we just need to continue to do our job. I think that you worry about the poll numbers later on, but right now you worry about doing your job. And as a former elected official, you know, obviously you want to see the great numbers and you feel good about it. But at the end of the day, you still have to do your job. And the president is very focused on making sure he does everything for the American people, including not just bringing down inflation, but also bringing up wages. Well, let's talk about the inflation side of it. Sneak peek of next week for you. 7.3% the median estimate, the high 76 the low seven, going through some of the estimates, Lloyds Bank at 7.6, Credit Suisse at 7.4, Morgan Stanley at 7.3, caught up with NNZ of Morgan Stanley. They're looking for a punchy number next week. 
Secretary Walsh, what's the message going to be from the administration as we just keep seeing inflation kick higher and stay at these well, levels? From where I sit, my job is to make sure that we continue to get people back to work. Uh, and, you know, I, I had a meeting with Secretary Yellen earlier this week. We talked a little bit about inflation. We talked about the job market. We talked about creating opportunities for people. We talked about the infrastructure law that was passed and the investments that are going to be made there. So I'm going to continue to do my job. And in different parts of the administration are going to be working on the inflation side. I'm part of that as well with the supply chain. But, but you know, again, we're taking this a day at a time. What does that mean when you say we're going to help people get back to work? What specifically are you and the, and the administration doing to try and achieve that? Well, certainly, we're work I'm working with governors and mayors across the country. We're making investments in job training programs. We're making, looking at the way we do job training and workforce development in the infrastructure law. We're making sure that we're going to be working on pre-apprenticeship programs and apprenticeship programs to get more people into the building trades. We're going to be working, working on the supply chain. We're working on the, on the trucking industry to get more people on the trucking side of, of supply chain demands that are happening in our country now. Last mile, uh, you know, a lot of the concerns we have is not just bringing ships in off, off the coast to, to, to unload them. We also need to make sure that the products that are on those ships get to stores, get to warehouses, get to Main Street America. So we're working to increase other jobs. Uh, we also saw one of the participation rates that we saw in uh, that's growing is younger people, 16 to 21 people getting into the workforce. We need to make sure that as those folks get into the workforce that we're training them not just for the jobs of today, but making sure they have really pathways into the middle class. So that, that's what I mean by that. Secretary Walsh, just a final question from me, and allow me to go here. The Bank of England governor, Mr. Bailey yesterday faced a lot of backlash for what he said about pay rises and workers. And he effectively said that the people in the UK shouldn't demand a big pay rise this year because it might cause more problems. I just wonder, as a union guy yourself, how you'd respond to a line like that, what your position I would be on that debate at the moment. I think any time that we see increase, increases in wages for people, that's a good thing. Uh, we saw 13, 13, roughly 13 to 15% wage increase in hospitality. And what did we see? We saw more participation of workers in that industry. I think it's important to pay workers more. It's important to respect our workers. Uh, and it's important to keep our economy moving forward. Marty Walsh, the U.S. Secretary of Labor. Marty, thank you. I know you're super busy trying to explain this one to a lot of people after setting us up maybe for soft print. We've got a really, really good print. Secretary Walsh there, thank you very much. John, I want you to bring in Jeffrey Rosenberg as a markets move here, but I really want to rip up the script, John, in the next 30 minutes and sure. leave McKee here to give us further study on the most stunning miss I've ever seen. That sounds perfect. This is a monster upside surprise. 467 is the number. 125 was the estimate, but the range was huge. 250 at the top end, negative 400K at the bottom end. Wages look fantastic. The two years responding. Yield tie there by nine basis points. We approach 130 on a US two-year. John. Uh, Jeff Rosenberg. Could, yeah, sure. You want to jump in, Mike? Yeah, sure. I just want to jump in with one number here because we didn't even notice this. That 709,000 you're talking about, December was revised up from 199 to 510. Wow. The, the, there's a note in here that suggests that the seasonal factors have been updated to better distinguish what was COVID and what was seasonal. And so... Uh, it's not just that there was a huge gain this month. There was a huge gain last month as well. Let's get to Jeff now from BlackRock. Jeff, we were told to ignore this one. We're not ignoring it now, Jeff. Why? Well, you can't ignore this one. It, it, it's got a lot of moving pieces as, as we're dissecting here uh, real time. You, you know, I think Mike's got it right in, in terms of the, you know, the revisions is, is, is really important. You don't see the expected Omicron impact. A lot of that can be due to 
the difficulty of seasonal adjustments. Uh, but the other pieces of this report are also very strong in terms of the, the wage piece and uh, the labor force participation rate. So, you know, taken in total, you talked about the market reaction and Neil's comment. You know, this really is not the kind of little bit of we can look past this one, but much more about both what it tells us in terms of those revisions as well as what it's saying today. This is the labor market really screeching, uh, screaming, I should say. Uh, and, and that's going to continue to keep the pressure on the Fed. And that's why you're seeing the move in the front end, because the market is pricing this acceleration in near-term tightening. Uh, and, and I think that will remain the theme here for a while. This report does a lot to continue to accelerate that theme of upfronting uh, the pace of, of Fed hikes. Maybe, you know, I'm, I, I don't know if that's necessarily 50, but it's really about how many, how quickly do they get it in uh, this year. And a very rapid change from, you know, expecting a quarterly pace to now, you know, it's going to be every meeting to Neil's comment about now they need to throw in a 50 in there. Uh, but definitely here the surprise is that this is just again telling us how overheated this labor market is. Can you put this report together with what we heard from the Bank of England, the European Central Bank, the shift that we have seen this week in markets as globally there is a feeling that the labor market, that in general inflation is getting too hot. And have you shifted your, your investment perspective at all? Well, there's still this distinction, you know, between the U.S., the uh, the Bank of England, and the ECB. We heard we heard a lot about that yesterday from from Lagarde. But uh, but overall, in terms of particularly the outlook, both for all three, you know, the labor market will very much sit at the center of that debate. I think for Europe, that's still you know <clears throat> to be seen. I think what you're seeing here in today's report for the U.S. Right. as well as for the Bank of England, is that the strength in the labor markets is, is really the risk of a more persistent inflationary outcome, because that strong <laughs> of a labor market is about the fears of yeah. wage price spiral. And so it shifts from the supply side COVID disruption narrative to something that's much more right. difficult for policymakers to rein in, which is which is which is a wage, wage price spiral source of inflation. Jeff Rosenberg, the 10 year inflation adjusted yield is a measurement of a negative 0.54. This on a day where we really consider finally a positive rate regime across most, if not all of Europe. I'm going to assume the path from here to a flat or positive 10-year real yield has nonlinearities in it. What's going to be the impact to the overall financial system and to the overall economy is that 10-year real yield migrates up towards zero. Well, you know, it, it's a question in your question, is it a, a slow migration or is it a nonlinearity? The Fed doesn't like nonlinearities because the market doesn't deal well with nonlinearities. That's too rapid of a tightening on financial conditions. The Fed wants to tighten financial conditions, but it doesn't want to crash confidence and over-tighten. So it's a very tough uh, uh, path for the Fed to try to take. That's the argument against the 50 basis point shock, uh, because it is a bigger shock. It risks sort of uh, a narrative getting away from the Fed that, that they're way behind the curve and that inflation is accelerating out of control. Whereas in their forecasts, and the market consensus forecast is that inflation will start to come down. So you don't want to 
over-tighten and over-shock the market, yet the path towards real interest rates here globally, and I think that's the message for the, the week, is that we're going to exit this era of persistent negative real interest rates. The challenge is, can you exit that era without uh, a, a bigger financial tightening, a bigger financial accident? Clearly, that's what the policymakers are going to be aiming for. And so the guidance around that is going to be to try to tighten without over-tightening. Jeff, just as an investor of PM at the moment, are you having fun in this market? Is this fun <laughs> or is this brutal? Well, you know, it depends on your investment process and, and, and what you have for levers. If, if, if you have a diversified portfolio across both directional which is, you know, are we, are we betting on interest rates going up or interest rates going down? That's a very difficult uh, set of tools. But the other thing that's happening here that is quite advantageous to a different toolkit, that is uh, a toolkit that exploits differences across interest rates, differences in dispersion in both micro and macro markets, it's actually starting to become a much better environment for those types of strategies. And so while it's difficult in terms of kind of direction, will markets go up, will markets go down, as the Fed and global central banks pull back from this era of incredible liquidity and policy accommodation that is compressed differences, that reduces opportunity, you actually see opportunities arise in the, what we call in the cross-section and differences across countries and different yeah. companies. So, a little bit of uh, glass half empty, glass half full there. For those of you who think they've been living in the real world for the last two months, you haven't been. Omicron did not happen. 467 is the number for January. The previous read, 510. Uh, Lisa, this stuff is just unbelievable, just to get your teeth into. We were told repeatedly this morning, ignore the payrolls number, big Omicron impact, and then bang, yields exploding up eight or nine basis points to 128. I'll discuss this with Jeff's colleague a little bit later, Rick Reader of BlackRock, talk to him about how on earth he's handling this situation, just the cash allocation. I wonder how large that is at the moment. Anastasia Ramarosa will join in, Mike Collins of PGM2, and then later we'll catch up with the White House. I imagine, Lisa, the interview that Secretary Walsh thought he was going to do yesterday. <laughs> it's very different. It's a different one to the one he's about to do now. I think he was about to tell me all the differences between the household survey and the other survey and why this number was so bad. And this is going to be a different one yeah, it's in about be, an hour. It's going to be one about inflation. It's going to be one about a labor market that looks increasingly tight. I keep going back to this idea that the European market right now is really in shock still from the ECP's pivot yesterday. Why has the U.S. market not reacted? It looks like the reaction is coming today. Jeff, do you think that there is more to come in terms of this recalibration of, as what you said is, we are moving to a new regime where negative real rates are no longer? Yeah, I, look, I think there's a lot of room to go there. And I, I think there's a big debate uh, growing around the pace of how quickly the ECB has to move. You know, there's still a lot more, as Lagarde said yesterday, a lot more data dependence. And, and so you saw the first crack in European inflation data, right? So that's really what has kind of changed the narrative and forced the ECB off of the you know, somewhat conditional promises of no rate hikes. They've been kind of mugged by the data, mugged by the reality uh, that inflation there is, is rolling. Now, they, again, have a different underlying fundamentals between wages than what we're seeing here in the U.S. And that's partly, Lisa, why I think you saw you know, less of a reaction in the U.S. relative to a very strong reaction. But also look, again, in that cross-section. Where was the biggest reaction? Uh, 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 <clears throat> 
Jonathan mentioned it earlier, the, 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 the spectacular increases in Italian yields, because in the cross-section of European Central Bank support, it's compressed, it's, it's muted the fundamental yeah. differences in where yields should trade across the European complex. And so as you pull back, not only on the level of that interest rate support, you're going to see a lot more in, in the cross-section. That's going to be a challenge yeah. to the ECB, uh, but it is very much part of what I think we're going to see re-emerge as the ECB is forced to pull back on this tremendous era of policy accommodation. Jeff Rosenberg, thank you so much for BlackRock. What a busy day you're going to have at your uh, shop. Tiffany Wilder here to translate. Boy, do we need Tiffany Wilding yes, today uh, with PIMCO, their chief U.S. economist. Tiffany, I'm going to cut to the chase with an open question. I never do this, but it is so chaotic. What are you going to write about this weekend? Get, give us a, I want to front load, I, I want to front load Jerome Schneider. Tell me before you tell Jerome Schneider <laughs> what you're going to write about. Well, good morning, Tom and Paul. I mean, I, so first of all, I think this—the uh, headlines on this report were a little bit tough to interpret, just because of the the revisions, uh, re benchmark revisions were incorporated, and they also revised the seasonal factors. So that actually contributed um, yeah. you know, to some of the big month-over-month -month jumps in, in like the labor force participation rate and the EPOP uh, employment to population ratio, um, and some of the big monthly revisions. But I think just you ha so you have to take a broader look, and I think once you do that, what you still see. Is is that this was a very solid report on a number of fronts. First and foremost, I think, is on the labor force participation rate. So this has been a bit of a conundrum all year. Um, we, like many forecasters, had expected you know, some recovery in the labor force <coughs> participation rate, and it just wasn't happening. Yeah. The data today basically changed that, I think, changed that narrative. And it looks like the mm -hmm. labor force participation rate is actually um, accelerating in quite a big way. And it lines yep. up with some of the expirations of the you know, government uh, income subsidies, you know, like enhanced unemployment benefits uh, that was last September, or obviously did the December expiration of the child yeah. uh, tax credit. So it looks like people are coming back, and that's ultimately good. Yeah. Nevertheless, you had... Um, uh, you had wages that were also very strong. So in terms of the Federal Reserve, to me, this argues more for, um, you know, a sequential pace of rate hikes, maybe in the, um, you know, March, May, uh, June of this year, it maybe doesn't st still yet argue for a 50 basis point rate hike in March. I mean, the Fed is not going to want to squash out this labor force participation gain, but right. they are going to want to ease off of wages. So I, I think that's yeah. really the balance here. Paul from New Jersey emails in. And he says, Tom, do logarithms. Let's do it on a Friday, folks. I did, Tiffany, a log extrapolation of the trend oh of average hourly earnings before the pandemic. And that statistic is roughly 3.9% up. We're not up 3.9%. We're up 5.7%. A big, big lift induced by all this. Is wage inflation entrenched? Well, I, I think you also have to keep in mind that um, inflation, headline CPI inflation, is still 7%. So even though we are getting a nice adjustment in wages, wages on a real basis are still negative. So people, the economy as a whole, in aggregate, are not fully getting cost of living adjustments. Um, and I think that's important. 
Um, obviously, that's important for welfare, but it's also important in this whole debate about, um, you know, are we on the precipice of a wage price spiral? And really, the first kind of step in that wage price spiral is that you do actually get um, people that are able to bargain for full cost of living adjustments, or if not more, you know, and companies are then able to pass that on to consumers again, and that sort of starts off the spiral. You know, this data, obviously, we're strong. Average hourly earnings also obviously strong, but we're still not at that level where you are getting a full cost of living adjustment in wages. Um, you know, so I think as I kind of look at the, the evidence, you know, it, it still seems to me that we're, you know, we're not on the precipice of that. Yeah. Um, you know, nevertheless, though, uh, you know, as a result of an underlying strong economy, you are getting some, some wage pressures. And, and ultimately, that's a, that's a good thing for workers. So, uh, Tiffany, uh, you know, coming up at the top of the hour, Jonathan Farrow from Bloomberg Television is going to sit down with U.S. Secretary of Labor Marty Walsh. What do you expect the Secretary of Labor? How, how do you think he will put these numbers into context? Does do you think we are at full employment here in a post-pandemic world? Well, I mean, I think I think we're 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 certainly getting close if we're not there, right? And the reason is because, um, and, and full employment, by the way, is a bit of a moving target. So that's why you always get you know wishy-washy answers from economists. No, it's going to depend on the people and how many come back to the labor market. Um, you know, obviously, there's been a lot of people that retired as a result of of this pandemic. Yeah. Uh, many of those retired people were probably you know they could have had underlying health conditions, et cetera. They were yeah. worried about coming back to work. So we would think as you know as those health anxieties really start to fade you do get more labor force participation so although we might be you know very close to maximum employment now with that additional labor supply it kind of gives you a little bit more runway moving forward so this is something that's going to be very important to watch was that a wishy-washy answer paul should we let her go (laughs) i I gotta go that's pretty solid a solid answer okay tiffany wilding thank you for not wishy-washy answers uh this morning pimco's chief u.s economist On short notice, with oil at $93 a barrel, Javier Blas joins us with Bloomberg Opinion, but far more his acclaimed book on hydrocarbons, The World for Sale. Javier, are the Saudis and the Russians on the same page? I think that they are. They, 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 I think that they are very happy what they see at the moment on the market. They are producing a lot of oil. The market is about $90, heading towards $100. Uh, they're going to make a ton of money. I don't think that there is much disagreement. And if there is any disagreement, you could think that the Saudis perhaps, um, and, sorry, the Russians perhaps are more worried about the response on shale. But at the moment, Russia is really struggling to increase production. So I don't see Russia putting any pressure whatsoever on Saudi Arabia to rush more barrels into the market. $5 a gallon gas, when we get there soon, will be something to behold. Can America turn on the supply effort? Uh, Yes, uh, America is actually drilling a lot, and I think that shale may surprise to the upside this year, but potentially it's not going to be enough because the main problem on the oil market, it is not on the second half of 2022. It is now. Now is when we are beginning to see the shortage. Now is when we are seeing the refiners paying huge premiums over the futures market to secure oil on the physical market. Uh, The American oil, the shale production is going to come, but it may be too late to stop this rally. Javier, a lot of people say that once the Ukraine-Russia conflict gets resolved, oil prices will come back down and come back down quickly. Do you agree? 
I think that there is a geopolitical premium and certainly European refiners are buying precautionary other grades, non-Russian oil, just in case that there is trouble uh, with Russia and Ukraine. But I think that physically the market is tight. And while there may be a premium there for the for the potential of war in, in Ukraine, I don't think that it's as large as some people think. Can we go down five dollars if everything gets resolved? Sure. But that brings us to the high 80s, and that's not cheap. All right. So what's the upside surprise? Where is it going to come from that could push oil to that 100 $105? The, 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 the surprise to the upside for me has been, and, and you know that I have been talking about this for a while, is the financial side, is the options market. We have huge layers of call options, about 95, 100, 105, and then going all the way to 150. We may be on a situation where the Greeks of the, the market gamma, and we have seen that on the stock market also at other times, but uh, the, the, the financial flows may take over and those options may just push prices uh, well above $100. If we move significantly higher than $100, I think it's going to be mostly on Wall Street financial flows. Javier, just quickly, and we can sit on this if you like, typically when you get up to these levels, especially over the last 20 years or so, something breaks, something gives way. Last time around, it was the Saudis, just in terms of a market share war that they started at the back end of 2014. You've talked to me about why that could be different this time around, because Shell is so less responsive at the moment. Javier, I just wonder from your perspective then where you're focused, what you would expect to break as crude starts to shift out higher. Is it a, a demand story? What would you say it is? I think that the White House breaks and makes the phone call. Biden gets into the, into the phone with uh, Saudi Arabia crown prince Mohammed bin Salman, someone that he has refused to talk on the phone or meet face to face. And he asked for more oil. I think that the White House breaks and then we get the Saudi response and we get more Saudi barrels. Javier, are you saying that at the moment what we're seeing in the oil market, not all of it, but some of it, is a blinking contest between this White House and Riyadh? The fact that this president yeah. does not want to deal with the crown prince? Absolutely. Uh, Biden is refusing to make the phone call. The Saudis want that phone call. They want to be uh, the recognition that they think they, they, they deserve and the Americans, they think that they don't. And, and I think that it's a, it's a bit of a, um, uh, yeah, it's a okay corral. We'll see who, right. who blinks first. Javier, what's the power of Mr. Putin then right now? Oh, Mr. Putin sits on, on a lot of power. It just produced 11 million barrels a day. So um, he has a very significant geopolitical tool uh, in his oil exports and his gas exports. But I don't think that Putin is going to use that geopolitical tool because for him it's more valuable just threatening to use than actually going ahead with the use. Javier Blas of Bloomberg Opinion now. Javier, fantastic. Lucky to have him with us. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. 